There's a story of a son who loved his father, and a father who loved his son. A father who taught his son how to ride a bike, how to wet a fishing pole, how to play sports, how to shoot a basketball. And as that relationship grew and their love for one another and their care for one another grew, the son got older. Trouble happened in life and fracturing a family and yet that father was the first call always whenever something good or something hard happened in college for this son. And through a series of events in adulthood, that deep, close relationship between father and son, through a series of events over the course of a few years, became fractured, completely fractured. And you had a son who was felt orphaned by his father, who was there when he was young and loved him and cared for him and spent time with him. And the father walked away from relationship with his family, with his son, with his other sons. And that father missed graduations. That father missed weddings. That father missed the birth of grandchildren. And that son had to tell his own son when he was little, when his son looked around and said, there's grandmother over here, where's your dad? Those are hard, sad fractures that happen in families. It's a sad story, but unfortunately it's becoming more and more of a common story. The fracturing of families, the loss of relationship. Do you have any unmended relationships in your life? Maybe it's because of a lack of confession and admittance to things that you've done that are wrong or maybe it's just an unwillingness because there's so much water under the bridge, an unwillingness to forgive past hurts. Perhaps you feel like it's just too risky to try again. That's real life. There's a real brokenness that people walk through in life. I'm a golfer, and so I haven't given a golf illustration in a while. But in golf, we have this, we have this saying, if we're really going to unleash on a shot, we're going to give it all we have and leave it all on the table. We call that a full send. And we're going to leave it all on the table, and we don't know if we swing really hard and try to hit it as far as we can, if we're going to pull that off, but we're going to give it a full send. And what you're going to see in today's text in the book of In the life of Joseph, we've been studying the life of Joseph. We've seen him testing his brothers to see where their hearts are. And today, you're going to see a full send from Joseph to try to restore his relationship with his brothers who have sinned against him. And he's going to put his heart on the line. He's going to give a final test to his brothers. And then he's going to reveal himself and put his heart on the line. C3. Have you taken a full send shot at reconciliation with people that you have broken relationships with? Well, you don't want to risk it. There's too much water under the bridge. It's too broken to fix. 
But I want to tell you that God wants to mend broken relationships. That's what God's about. He's about mending things that are broken. And that's what the beauty of what we're going to see in this text. And I'm going to tee this up for you. No, sorry, one more golf thing. In Genesis 44, because there's some things in Genesis 4, 44 you need to see, but our primary text is going to be Genesis 45, the first section where you see Joseph reveal himself. And we're going to land in full reconciliation because of God's transforming grace. His sovereign transforming grace that he works in relationships and because that's what God is about. So I want to look at it in Genesis chapter 44 and your first point this morning is this. God's grace transforms the hearts of even the worst of offenders. God's grace transforms even the hearts of the worst of offenders. I want to look at 44 and I'm just going to tell you the storyline and we're going to point a few verses out but really in my mind are the, the guilty brothers, particularly Judah. I want you to think about Judah and what we've know about Judah as New Testament believers. We know some things about him, but when we meet him in the book of Genesis, he's kind of a scumbag. But I want you to see this grace of God transforming the hearts of these brothers, these worst of offenders to the brother Joseph. And so you come to 44 and Joseph's been testing his brothers and you kind of go, well, when is he going to stop testing them? And when are we just going to kind of bring this thing back together? And you get to 44 and Joseph gives... These brothers, one more test. They're about to leave to go back to their father with Simeon, with Benjamin. And he puts a silver cup in the sack of Benjamin, the youngest, the favored one. Jacob's favorite son. The son in which Jacob said, if I lose him, I'm going to die. And he puts, his servant puts the cup in the sack of Benjamin. The brothers get out of town, get out of Egypt, and they're going back to Canaan. And the servant comes, Joseph's servant in his house comes, and he stops them really with an army, and he says, who took the cup? And we know the rest of the story. We know Judah and the brothers say, we're innocent, we didn't do it. If that cup is found in one of these bags, to that person there should be death and the rest of us will become slaves. Not a great idea. And where do they find the cup? They find the cup, Joseph's cup, the family seal cup, in Benjamin's bag. And Joseph is testing his brothers to see how they'll respond. Will they care for their brother? Will they acknowledge their own guilt from the past? Will they care for their father? Unlike what happened 22 years before with Joseph when they sold him into slavery. And they cared less about what their father wished to happen. And the servant says, no, you won't die. The person who has the cup, that person will become a servant or a slave and the rest of you can go. And they find, verse 12, they find the cup in Benjamin's bag. But look at the response of the brothers. Verse 13, I think we have it here. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Two things. Tearing of clothes is mourning. When you see someone tearing their clothes, they're mourning, they're weeping, they're sad, they're frustrated because of what's just happened. And so these brothers' hearts are continuing to change. They have a heart for their brother. They have a heart for their father. 
They tear their clothes and they don't leave and go back to Canaan and, and leave Benjamin, do they? Which they could have done. Y'all can leave. They come back to the city. And then you see Judah. Judah pleads with Joseph. He pleads with Joseph. But look at verse 16. Verse 16, here's what happens, has happened in Judah's heart. What shall we say to my Lord? Because Joseph calls him out. Why did you do this deed? They didn't. They didn't take the cup. Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? He doesn't come up with reasons or excuses. And then he says this. Look at verse 16. God has found out the guilt of your servants. The guilt of the servants. They didn't, none of them took the cup. You know, most commentators here do. As they say, he's not referring to the cup. He's referring to what happened with Joseph way back. And so he sees his guilt for what it is. That God is making this thing clear to the brothers, their guilt with Joseph. And so what you see here is not an admission of guilt to the cup that they didn't take. But Judah knows that he's guilty and he knows he has this coming. And the brothers, it says, we are the Lord's servants. We are your slaves. Both we and also those who had his hand in the cup that had been found. And so vertically what you see here is transformation of their hearts. They ad they're admitting their guilt before God. And they're also showing care for their brother Benjamin and care for what their father thinks and what will happen to their father. Look at it at the end of the chapter. So Judah comes and he pleads with Joseph and he tells the story. See, Joseph has been in Egypt and he doesn't know what's happened when he went back to, when the sons went back to Canaan and Jacob was all torn up because Simeon was in jail and they were calling Benjamin to have to come back and Jacob said, I'm fearful, I don't want to send my only son, my last son, the son whom I love, back to Egypt. And Jacob is all torn up and before they leave, he said, you've got to bring him back. And Judah steps up even then and says, on my life, I'll bring him back. And so Judah goes to Joseph and he recalls that whole storyline, which Joseph doesn't know about his father, effectively. And he said, look, my father will die unless we bring Benjamin back. And I can't leave without bring, bringing Benjamin back. And look at the change in Judah. Verse 32, you have it here. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. And here it is. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. What do we know about Judah? Right here he's saying, I'll take his place. I'll be the substitute. I'll take my brother's place. I can't bear the thought of my father dying or my father failing in his spirit because he doesn't get his son back. Do you notice how different that is than where we meet Judah in chapter 37? In chapter 37 of Genesis, we meet Judah in a very different place. He's one of the brothers who sees his brother Joseph from the distance, who he hates. He doesn't want to be around. He says, let's kill him. And then they put him in the pit. All together, they put him in the pit, and they're having lunch. See the callousness of that. And Judah has a thought, doesn't he? It's not good enough that we kill him. 
If we kill him, we don't get anything out of this deal. Think about how messed up that is. We won't get anything if we just kill him, so why don't we sell him so we can get something out of this? See how demented his heart is toward his brother. And here, he's willing to be a substitute. He's willing to take his brother Benjamin's place. You see the change. And then you go on and look at Judah a little further in the next chapter. And you see this sexual immorality in chapter 37, 38. I can't even talk about the details of it. It's so gross. He's one of the worst offenders. And what do you see here? You see transformation of his heart. God's grace transforms the heart of even the worst of offenders. This is what you see in Judah. And the Bible is full of Judas. The Bible's full of Judas. The idol worshiper, Abram, who God brought to himself out of, the guy was worshiping a moon god. You see Jacob, the manipulator, the liar, the conniver, the heel grabber. You see Jacob, you see Abraham and Jacob. You see David, this adulterer and murderer. You see the half-hearted followers of Jesus, or of, of God in the Old Testament. You see in Matthew, when you come to the New Testament, this unethical businessman who sells out for his country. You see Peter with his racism and his classism. You see greedy, you see religious terrorists, effectively, like Paul. And then you see religious legalists, like the Pharisees, like Nicodemus, and yet... All those people were transformed by the grace of God. All of them. The world is still filled with Judas. You and me. The person that doesn't know Jesus that you look at and go, that guy could never know Jesus. He's so far off. The grace of God can transform any heart. Exhibit A, right here, Judah. Well, maybe you say, well... I'm not as bad as Judah. I've never done the things that Judah's done. You know, the Bible says that if you violate the law at one point, you're guilty of all. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Listen, you may not be as bad as Judah. Maybe your resume doesn't look as bad as Judah. But you're just as bad off as Judah is. Because God is a holy and perfect God who has given his Son for you and there's nothing that you can bring to make yourself right with him. You talk about God grading on a curve. Jesus broke the curve. There's no curve. There's nothing you bring to get merit your favor with God. And maybe you're saying, well, some people might think, um, I'm not as bad as Judah. And maybe you think, man, I'm worse than Judah. There's no way God could ever transform me and use me. There's a blight in my life five years ago, and I can never get over that. God can never change that. God can never forgive me for that. So maybe you feel as if God can't use you, that you're unworthy, that you're unusable. Judah ought to give you hope. He was a messed up guy, and not only that, you know what happens in a few chapters? This same Judah... I just gave you his rap sheet. In Genesis 49, Jacob at the end of his life gives blessing to his sons and actually foretells of the things that are going to happen in their lives. And you come to chapter 49 verse 10 and he speaks of Judah. 
speaks of Judah, the scepter not departing from Judah. You remember the bloodline of Christ that we're seeing from Genesis 3 all the way through Genesis, all the way to the New Testament? You see it with Adam, you see it with Seth, you see it with Noah, you see it with Shem, you see it with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Who's next? Judah. Where does Jesus come from? The lion of the tribe of Judah. At the end of time, where God is going to bring judgment, the angel in in Revelation chapter 5, this is glorious, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, who can open the seals? Who can bring judgment? Who's worthy enough to bring judgment? The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of Jesse. The one who's conquered sin and death. That's who. So is God going to use Judah? He absolutely. Can God use you? Absolutely. See, God doesn't despise you because you have a past. A past that you likely despise. He chooses instead to unite you with his son, Jesus. And that's his choice. Jesus, the one who is despised for you and for me. That's how God works. He transforms the hearts of even even the worst of offenders. I don't know what your history is. I don't don't know your testimony, all of your testimonies. Some of you, some of you got to a place where you needed to confess and repent because you thought you were good enough and you lived a really good life and you thought that that was enough and God had to convince you that you needed to repent and turn from your sin of being good, that you could never earn his favor. But some of you may be like me. I had a kind of a rap sheet, if you will. And so when you do things like go to a 10-year class reunion or a 20-year class reunion and you're a pastor and you have that rap sheet and you turn to people and you're having that conversation with people like, what do you do? And you say, I'm a pastor. And they start laughing. (laughs) Really? Never would have pegged you for that. You know what you can say? You start laughing too and you go, you know what? I wouldn't have believed it either. But God can transform even the worst of offenders like me. Let me tell you about that. This is what God does. The brothers were guilty. They owned it. They were changed by the grace of God. They were repentant. But now the question is, how will Joseph respond? He's put them through all these tests and they've passed effectively. How's he going to respond? Now the weight is on him. Is he going to give full forgiveness Is he going to restore them? Now the shoe drops to him. How's he going to respond? You ever been in that place where someone actually does come to you and say, I I wronged you, I sinned against you, and you're like, man, now I've got to deal with this. It was kind of nice in my flesh just to stay in that and not have to deal with it and just be resentful and hold a grudge and be bitter. But now I've got to own this. Now I've got to move toward this person. I don't really feel like it. How's Joseph going to respond? Look at chapter 45, and I'm going to read 1 through 9. It's a glorious text. I'm just going to read it. It's better read than honestly explained. It's a beautiful text of forgiveness. Look at it. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go from me. 
So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. They were fearful. They were trembling. So look at the grace of Joseph. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me. That's not like six feet of proximity because of a mask and come closer. That's relationally come close to me so I can give you a hug, so I can embrace you. And they came near and he said, I'm your brother. I think he came near so they could see his eyes, so they could see him. Whom you sold into into Egypt. And now don't be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here. He said it twice. There's an acknowledgement of what they've done. This is not the Hallmark movie where everything's good without confession and repentance. But don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Here's what he sees. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land those two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me, there it is again, before you to preserve you as a remnant on the earth. The promise And to keep alive for you many survivors. So it is not you who sent me here. Look at the perspective he has now. It's not you who sent me here, but God sent me here. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, the lord of all of his house, the ruler over all the land, like the dream he had in 37. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. Well, you see the forgiveness that Joseph brings to his brothers when he reveals himself for who he really is. He sees past his brother's sin. He can move past his brother's sins, which they have repented for and confessed to. He can move past it. And here's your point, and this is a big one. Trusting God's sovereignty empowers you to see past and move past your deepest hurts. Trusting God's sovereignty in all your situations, in good and bad, empowers you to see past and move past the deepest of your hurts. He's not ignoring what they did. He sees what they did. He's been testing them for what they did. But God is sovereign. He's providential. He's wise. And Joseph sees it that way now. It, may, it took him a while This is 22 years since he's been sold into the pit. But he believes in God's sovereignty. And here's the thing. God's sovereignty is not just this intellectual belief system that we study at Theology on Tap or the Institute and we leave in the classroom. God's sovereignty is so much more than that. It's a hard thing to grasp how God is sovereign and providential, and he works all these things to the counsel of his will, even when they're hard, even when you can't see it, to believe that he's wise. That's a hard thing to get your mind around. So what either happens is we leave it in the classroom, or we look at it and we go, I can't figure it all out. How does God's sovereignty relate to my responsibility and people's choices? I can't figure it out, so I'm just going to leave it on the shelf as well. Listen, God's sovereignty and his providence, and believing that he is all-wise, is the anchor for your soul when you go through trouble. 
is a soothing balm of assurance when you don't know what's next. And he is there. No, God's sovereignty is not left to a classroom. It is how you walk with God through good and through bad. When the diagnosis comes, when you work for Exxon and you don't know if you're going to have a job next week because layoffs, you don't know what's going to happen to your business or somebody betrays you or hurts you. When you can't make sense of life, you need the balm and the anchor of God's sovereignty to see you through, to believe that he works all things, Ephesians 1, to the counsel of his will, all things, good, bad, all of it. Romans 8, 28, works all things for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. And it doesn't mean that you understand it all. It doesn't mean you feel like understanding it all or you don't ask God questions. The Bible is littered with saints asking God why. You can do that. But trusting in his sovereignty is a balm for you. It's an anchor for your soul. And there's really two ditches that I can think of If I didn't believe in God's sovereignty, if I didn't believe that God was that big, the big God that we see in the book of Genesis and that we see in this story, a God that's not one-dimensional in the way that he works, but he's multi-dimensional. If I had to lay all the things that are going on out here, I don't think I could do it on a spreadsheet or a storyboard. There's so much God is doing in so many different situations to make himself known in this story, to bring about the salvation of his people, the reconciliation of this family. The glory of his name through hard things. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Do you believe he's providentially working? Even when you don't like the election result and you worry about family in this nation, do you believe that he's providential? Do you believe that he's sovereign? And at the end of the day, do you believe that he's really wise when you look at the situation and you say, I don't see it, God. Is your view of God big enough that you can see past deep hurts from people and make things right with others? Can you see past to what God is doing? Do you see God's plan in your location? Do you see God's hand in your situation? John Newton wrote a lot of hymns, right? Amazing Grace, we know that one. He wrote this other hymn called Happy in Him. I want you to listen to the words. And it depicts a time that's challenging and he says this, how tedious and tasteless the hours when Jesus no longer I see. Been there in that dark place where it's hard to see the Lord. Sweet prospects, sweet birds and sweet flowers have lost all their sweetness to me. The midsummer sun shines but dim. The fields strive in vain. But when I'm happy in him, December's as pleasant as May. How's December looking right about now for you? The brothers are repentant. Joseph forgives his brothers. But what's the final result? You see repentance. You see forgiveness. They sing Kumbaya and then they go back to Canaan. And Joseph lives his life in Egypt and say, hey, you know, there's just too much water under the bridge. I'm glad we worked this out. But you go about your life and I'll go about mine. Is that what happens? Look at what's next. There's full restoration. There's full blessing. Look at chapter 45. Look at verse 10 and 11. Here's what Joseph does. 
He doesn't leave it at that. He doesn't send them on their way. He says, you shall dwell. He's talking to his brothers. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. This is in Egypt. Famine's still going on. The land of Goshen is good for herdsmen. That's what they are. He's giving them this land of Goshen. They lived there for 400 years, by the way. And you shall be near me. That's protection. He's the second in command in all of Egypt. That's protection. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that we have, there I will, what's the next word? Provide for you. And for there, there will still be five more years of famine. That's information they didn't know. There's going to be five more years so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. He's caring for them. These are the brothers that sold them into the slave, in slavery. 22 years of going through hell on earth because of these brothers. And he's generous and he blesses them. And then come down and look, Pharaoh wants to get in on the blessing too. And in verse 21, the scripture says, the sons of Israel did so and Joseph gave them wagons and provisions and a change of clothes, 300 shekels of silver. That ought to make your mind go back. 20 shekels of silver is what they sold Joseph for down as a slave in Egypt. And Joseph gives them 15 times the amount of money back. That's a full restoration. That's not just restoration and taking the guilt away from the brothers and giving them innocence. That is favor upon them. That is blessing upon them. Blessing upon blessing. That's what it looks like. And then the good things that he gives his father and the donkeys and the grain and the bread. And then you see, but then you see the sons doing what? They go back to Canaan and they have to tell their dad. And Joseph's last words to them before they live is don't quarrel. (laughs) Why why might they be quarreling on the way home? Because guess what? This is all beautiful and great, but now they got to go tell their dad what they did 22 years before that they've been hiding from him. And you see Joseph though, or you see Jacob. They told him, Joseph is still alive. He's a ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart, Jacob's heart becomes numb. You ever go to that feeling where your heart becomes numb because you're so happy but you're also so upset? Like you don't know where your emotions are? I wonder if that's why his heart was so numb. That his son was still alive that he thought was dead for so long. But also he has ten knucklehead sons who did what they did and they didn't tell anyone. And he's been believing this lie. And yet, it's kind of a grace to these sons in the midst of this that they come back to Egypt. And it says, the Bible says, the spirit of the father revived. I will go and see Joseph, my son, before I die. So listen, here's how this works. Big picture, this story. Repentance, confession of sin, plus Forgiveness, full forgiveness, equals full restoration. That's how it works in broken relationships. Repentance plus forgiveness equals full restoration. My wife and I, our first house was a fixer-upper in Spring Branch in the middle of Houston. And I'll never forget, we bought it and... uh, my wife's parents came to look at it 
and uh, we showed them around, and they just, their eyes were really big, and we were telling them what we were going to do to this house, because it was in pretty rough shape. And my mother-in-law said, well, it's sturdy. <laughs> Only my mother-in-law could come up with that witty lady. But over the next few months, we had a couple months in the apartment, and so we worked night and day on the house, got some help, put in new floors, painted, knocked out some walls, did all kinds of things. Countertops, changed it. We restored it. It was better than it was before. And that's what the potential of full reconciliation with someone offers you. It's, it can be better than it was before. That's the goal, that's the target. But you and I both know in life, it doesn't always happen that way, does it? There's some factors that have to be present. People have to be willing to admit the wrong and admit their guilt. And they've offended and there's real sin that's happened. On the other side, there has to be a willingness to move toward and forgive the person who's wronged you. And when those things aren't present, or both of those things aren't present, you don't really get to a full reconciliation, necessarily. And sometimes that's not up to you. Sometimes you do what you can. And it takes kind of two to tango in this situation. And you see a beautiful picture of that here. But I just want to talk about the reality of broken relationships for a minute. And I can't cover all the bases today. I'm happy to sit and talk with you and talk through biblical principles about the situation in your life that might need some encouragement or some help. What do I do here and here? I'm not going to give you all the answers to all those things today, but I'll give you a couple of scenarios. Perhaps you're in a scenario where there's an offender who confesses and the offended won't forgive. I want you to notice something if you go back and read chapter 44 and Judah's plea to Joseph. He doesn't give a full fledged confession to Joseph. He doesn't cross every T and dot every I to what he did to his brother. And yet Joseph still forgives him. There's a posture of repentance from Judah. So it wasn't perfect. So maybe the person who's wronged you has come to you and offered, in your mind, a half-hearted apology. It's something. It's a starting place. So do you need the T's crossed and the I's dotted, all of them, from your perspective, for this thing to happen? And I would tell you, that you need to consider that you and I, before God, when we confessed our sin to Him and believed upon Christ, that offering probably wasn't perfect, probably still isn't perfect, and yet He still is giving us grace, forgiveness. So maybe that's you. Maybe you need to move toward the person who's trying to move toward you. And maybe that's a process. But you don't have full reconciliation yet. And then the other one is the offended party calls out the offender. And the offender doesn't own it. Says, I don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy. Or, I don't see it that way. I don't see it that way at all. I didn't do anything wrong to you. 
Is it okay at that point to hold a grudge? To remain bitter? Listen, you may not get reconciliation, but here's what you can get if you're in that position. You can get consolation with God. Because that doesn't mean that you, you don't release that to the Lord and say, God, you have to deal with that and maybe one day the person will see it or maybe in a few years I'll see it differently. But you don't have full reconciliation there. But the heart posture is the same. Whatever you're the offended or the offender, the heart posture is toward reconciliation. And maybe you get there in relationship and maybe you don't. But you need to be aiming in that direction. And the greatest example that we have, the aim for us, is a picture of what God has done for us in Christ. The guilty have to confess their sin and who they are to God and be forgiven. And it's a perfect forgiveness. It's not like human forgiveness. It's a perfect forgiveness. It's a perfect acceptance where you get a seat at the table. You get all the blessings of forgiveness that Christ offers you. And he reconciles you to himself and he brings you to his table and he adopts you as a son or a daughter. That's the aim. And the Bible even speaks about this. Forgive one another just as Christ and God God in Christ has forgiven you. How has God in Christ forgiven you? You've repented of your sin. You've confessed your sin. And he forgives you. And now you have reconciliation with him. That's how it works. 2 Corinthians 5 says it this way. I think we have that text. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 18 through 21. may know this text, familiar text to you perhaps. Verse 17 says, if anyone's in Christ, right, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, but look at 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled. Reconciliation is two parties that are estranged from one another coming back together. Be reconciled through Christ, us, himself, us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So if you're a believer in Christ, he's reconciled you to himself and now you have a ministry of reconciliation to others. That means sharing the gospel, but it also means that we reconcile with one another. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. And you continue to see this passage. That's the aim, to model the reconciliation that we've received from Christ in our relationships. And listen, there's some ditches here. <laughs> there's a lot of ditches in all this. There's the ditches in reconciliation. Sometimes what we do, I call it faux forgiveness or therapeutic forgiveness where we just need to feel better and so the person hasn't confessed or repented and we just say, hey, we forgive you and we're all good and we act like everything is good when really in our hearts we haven't walked through the process that we ought to walk through and usually rough things happen after that. Ought we have a posture of forgiveness to the person who hasn't confessed and repented? Absolutely. You leave that at the cross. But oftentimes forgiveness is just this faux forgiveness because it makes us feel better just to say we forgave them and we're just going to go on about it. Or the other side, the other ditch, is that we just remain in this hardened heart for other people and we always have these reasons why that we can continue 
to stand and say, I'm not going to forgive you because you didn't cross the T or dot the I. There's ditches. But we aim at the cross and what God has done for us there. There's full restoration in the story of Joseph. And it's a beautiful picture. And if you need to sit and talk with, with me or an elder about a situation in your life, we're more than happy to walk with you and care for you where you're at and encourage you toward the Lord, toward another person, toward God himself. Perhaps the biggest issue you need to deal with is God himself. Are you reconciled with God? You made it right with God. You know, I told you that story about the father and the son. Ten years. Ten years is a broken relationship. Not much communication. One day, the son got a call from his dad. New Year's Day, ten years later. And the guy looked at his phone, his dad's name was on it, and he showed it to his wife and says, look at this. Answered the phone, and the dad said, can we try again? Can we try again? Can we start over? And it began a process of working through deep hurts and deep pains and confess sin to one another. And there is full restoration in a relationship that looked like it was over. God through his transforming grace, his sovereign grace can change the relationships in your life. Most of which are between you and him. He can bring that change to a Judah's heart like yours and mine. God is a God who reconciles people to himself and each other. He restores what's been broken. Your takeaway is really a question this morning. What needs restoring in your life? today. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're a God who forgives, who will take an innocent son and give it for a guilty people that are undeserving. So Lord, we, we pray that we would look at this story and do an honest evaluation of our own hearts before you if there needs to be restoration in an aspect of our relationship with you or perhaps there's one today who doesn't yet know you and is trying to earn favor with you or Lord I pray that they would see that they can't do that that your grace and what you've done on the cross through your son is what reconciles them to you. Lord, I pray for just the, the reality of life in a room with this many people. There are likely fractured relationships or even severed relationships that exist here. And Lord, I pray that you would meet people where they're at right now and the, and the hurts and the thoughts that they're having right now about this. You would be their comfort, but also that you would impress upon them perhaps a way in which they need to make some things right as far as it depends on them to move toward broken relationships. 
So Lord, give us the grace to do that. Move through your spirit in our, in our lives that we might be fully restored to those around us and fully restored to you. We love you. We thank you for time together where we can gather and open your word. We thank you for the richness of your word that it meets us where we're at. It meets us in the nitty-gritty things of life. And it always reminds us the lion of the tribe of Judah who gave his innocent life for guilty sinners like us. In Jesus' name, amen.